Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Again, Chapter 5. Prince Humperdinck just stared. He sat astride a white, studying the footsteps down on the Florida ravine. There was simply no other conclusion. The kidnapper had dragged his princess into it. Count Rugen sat alongside. Did they actually go in? The prince nodded. Praying the answer would be no, the count asked, Do you think we should follow them? The prince shook his head. They'll either live or die in there. If they die, I have no wish to join them. If they live, I'll greet them on the other side. It's too far around, the count said. Not for my whites. We'll follow as best as we can, the Count said. He stared again at the fire swamp. He must be very desperate, or very frightened, or very stupid, or very brave. Very all four, I should think, the Prince replied. Wesley led the way. Buttercup stayed just behind, and they made, from the outset, very good time. The main thing, she realized, was to forget your childhood dreams, for the fire swamp was bad, but it wasn't that bad. The odor of the escaping gases, which at first seemed almost totally punishing, soon diminished through familiarity. The sudden bursts of flames were easily avoided because, just before they struck, there was a deep kind of popping sound clearly coming from the vicinity where the flames would then appear. Wesley carried his sword in his right hand, his long knife in his left, waiting for the first ruse, but none appeared. He had cut a very long piece of strong vine and coiled it over one shoulder and was busy working on it as they moved. What we'll do once I've got this properly done is, he told her, moving steadily on beneath the giant trees, we'll attach ourselves to each other. So that way, no matter what the darkness, we'll be close. Actually, I think that's more precaution than necessary because to tell you the truth, I'm almost disappointed. This place is bad, all right, but it's not that bad. Don't you agree? Buttercup wanted to, totally, and she would have too. Only by then, the snow sand had her. Wesley turned only in time to see her disappear. Buttercup had simply let her attention wander for a moment. The ground seemed solid enough, and she had no idea what snow sand looked like anyway. But once her front foot began to sink in, she could not pull back. And even before she could scream, she was gone. It was like falling through a cloud. The sand was the finest in the world, and there was no bulk to it whatsoever, and at first, no unpleasantness. She was just falling, gently, through this very soft, powdery mass, falling farther and farther from anything resembling life. But she could not allow herself to panic. Wesley had instructed her on how to behave if this happened, and she followed his words now. She spread her arms and spread her fingers and forced herself into the position resembling that of a dead man's float and swimming. All this because Wesley had told her to, because the more she could spread herself, the slower she would sink. And the slower she sank, the quicker he could dive down after her and catch her. Buttercup's ears were now caked with snow sand all the way in, and her nose was filled with snow sand, both nostrils, and she knew if she opened her eyes, a million tiny fine bits of snow sand would seep behind her eyelids, and now she was beginning to panic badly. How long had she been falling? 
hours, it seemed, and she was having pain and holding her breath. You must hold it until I find you, he had said. You must go into a dead man's float and you must close your eyes and hold your breath and I'll come get you and we'll both have a wonderful story for our grandchildren. Buttercup continued to sink. The weight of the sand began to brutalize her shoulders. The small of her back began to ache. It was agony keeping her arms outstretched and her fingers spread when it was all so useless. The snow sand was heavier and heavier on her now as she sank always down. And was it bottomless? As they thought when they were children, did you just sink forever until the sand ate away at you and then did your poor bones continue to trip forever down? No, surely there had to be somewhere a resting place. A resting place, Buttercup thought. What a wonderful thing. I'm so tired. I'm so tired and I want to rest and Wesley, come save me, she screamed or started to. Because in order to scream, you had to open your mouth, so all she really got out was the first sound of the word, woo. After that, the snow sand was down her throat and she was done. Wesley had made a terrific start. Before she had even entirely disappeared, he had dropped his sword and long knife and had gotten the vine coil from his shoulder. It took him next to no time. What he had grabbed was a skeleton wrist, bone only, no flesh left at all. That happened in snow sand. Once the skeleton was picked clean, it would begin, often, to float, like seaweed in a quiet tide, shifting this way and that, sometimes surfacing, more often just journeying through the snow sand for eternity. Wesley threw a wrist away and reached out blindly with both hands now, scrabbling wildly to touch some part of her, because failure was not a problem. Failure is not a problem, he told himself. It is not a problem to be considered, so forget failure. Just keep busy and find her. And he found her, her foot more precisely, and pulled it to him. And then his arm was around her perfect waist, and he began to kick, kick with any strength left, needing now to rise a few yards to the end of the vine. The idea that it might be difficult finding a single vine strand in a small sea of snow sand never bothered him. Failure was not a problem. He would simply have to kick, and when he had kicked hard enough, he will rise, and when he had risen enough, he will reach out for the vine. When he reached out, it will be there. And when it was there, he would tie her to it. And with his last breath, he would pull them both up to life. Which is exactly what happened. She remained unconscious for a very long time. Wesley busied himself as best he could, cleansing the snow sand from ears and nose and mouth, and most delicate of all, from beneath the lids of her eyes. The length of her quietness disturbed him vaguely. It was almost as if she knew she had died and was afraid to find out for a fact that it was true. He held her in his arms, rocked her slowly. Eventually, she was blinking. For a time, she looked around and around. We lived then? She managed finally. We're a hardy breed. What a wonderful surprise. No need. He was going to say no need for worry, but her panic struck too quickly. It was a normal enough reaction, and he did not try to block it, but rather held her firmly and let the hysteria run its course. She shuddered for a time as if she fully intended to fly apart, but that was the worst. From there, it was but a few minutes of quiet sobbing. Then she was buttercup again. Wesley stood, buckled on his sword, replaced his long knife. Come, he said. We have far to go. Not until you tell me, she replied. Why must we endure this? Now is not the time. Wesley held out his hand. It is the time. 
She stayed where she was, on the ground. Wesley sighed. She meant it. All right, he said finally. I'll explain, but we must keep moving. Buttercup waited. We must get through the fire swamp, Wesley began, for one good and simple reason. Once he had started talking, Buttercup stood, following close behind him as he went on. I had always intended getting to the far side. I had not, I must admit, expected to go through. Around was my intention, but the ravine forced me to change. The good and simple reason, Buttercup prompted. On the far end of the fire swamp is the mouth of Giant Ill Bay. And anchored far out in the deepest waters of that bay is the great ship Revenge. The Revenge is the sole property of the Dread Pirate Roberts. The man who killed you? Buttercup said. That man? The one who broke my heart? The Dread Pirate Roberts took your life. That was the story I was told. Quite correct, Wesley said. And that ship is our destination. You know the Dread Pirate Roberts? You're friendly with such a man? It's a little more than that, Wesley said. I don't expect you to quite grasp all this at once. Just believe it's true. You see, I am the Dread Pirate Roberts. I fail to see how that's possible, since he's been marauding for 20 years and you only left me three years ago. I myself am often surprised at life's little quirks, Wesley admitted. Did he, in fact, capture you while you were sailing for the Carolinas? He did. His ship Revenge captured the ship I was on, the Queen's Pride, and we were all to be put to death. But Roberts didn't kill you. Clearly. Why? I cannot say for sure, but I think it's because I asked him please not to. The please, I suspect, arouses interest. I didn't beg or offer bribery as the others were doing. At any rate, he held off with his sword long enough to ask, Why should I make an exception to you? And I explained my mission. How I had to get to America to get money, to reunite me with the most beautiful woman ever reared by man, namely you. I doubt that she's as beautiful as you imagine, he said. And he raised his sword again. Hair the color of autumn, I said, and skin like wintry cream. Wintry cream, huh? He said. He was interested now, at least a bit, so I went on describing the rest of you, and at the end, I knew I had him convinced of the truth of my affection for you. I'll tell you, Wesley, he said then. I feel genuinely sorry about this, but if I make an exception in your case, news will get out that the dread pirate Roberts have gone soft, and that will mark the beginning of my downfall. For once they stop fearing you, piracy becomes nothing but work, work, work all the time, and I'm far too old for such a life. I swear I will never tell, not even my beloved, I said. And if you let me live, I'll be your personal valet and slave for five full years. And if I ever once complain or cause you anger, you may chop my head off right then and there, and I'll die with praise for your fairness on my lips. I knew I had him thinking. Go below, he said. I'll most likely kill you tomorrow. Wesley stopped talking for a moment and pretended to clear his throat because he had spotted the first ruse following behind them. There seemed no need to alert her yet, so he just continued to clear his throat and hurry along between the flame bursts. What happened tomorrow? Buttercup urged. Go on. Well, you know what an industrious fellow I am. 
You remember how I liked to learn and how I'd already trained myself to work 20 hours a day. I decided to learn what I could about piracy and the time left a lot in me, since it would at least keep my mind off my coming slaughter. So I helped the cook and I cleaned the hold and, in general, did whatever was asked of me, hoping that my energies might be favorably noted by the dread pirate Roberts himself. Well, I've come to kill you, he said the next morning, and I said, thank you for the extra time. It's been most fascinating. I've learned such a great deal. And he said, overnight? What could you learn in that time? And I said, that no one had ever explained to your cook the difference between table salt and cayenne pepper. Things have been a bit fiery this trip, he admitted. Go on, what else? And I explained that there will be more room in the hold if boxes have been stacked differently. And then he noticed that I had completely reorganized things down there. And fortunately for me, there was more room. And finally he said, very well, you can be my valet for a day. I've never had a valet before. I probably won't like it, so I'll kill you in the morning. Every night for the next year, he always said something like that to me. Thank you for everything, Wesley. Good night now. I'll probably kill you in the morning. By the end of that year, of course, we were more than valet and master. He was a pudgy little man, not at all fierce as you would expect the dread pirate Roberts to be, and I like to think he was as fond of me as I was of him. By then... I had learned really quite a great deal about sailing and hand fighting and fencing and throwing the long knife and had never been in as excellent physical condition. At the end of one year, my captain said to me, Enough of this valet business, Wesley. From now on, you're my second in command. And I said, Thank you, sir, but I can never be a pirate. And he said, You want to get back to that autumn hair creature of yours, don't you? And I didn't even have to bother answering that. A good year or two of piracy and you'll be rich and back you go. And I said, your men have been with you for years and they aren't rich. And he said, that's because they're not the captain. I'm going to retire soon, Wesley, and the revenge will be yours. I must admit, beloved, I weakened a bit there, but we reached no final decision. Instead, he agreed to let me assist him in the next few captures and see how I liked it, which I did. There was now another ruse following them, flanking them as they moved. Buttercup saw them now. Wesley... Shh, it's all right. I'm watching them. Shall I finish? Will it take your mind off them? You helped him with the next few captures, Buttercup said, to see if you liked it. Wesley dodged a sudden burst of flame, shielded Buttercup from the heat. Not only did I like it, but it turned out I was talented as well. So talented that Robert said to me one April morning, Wesley, the next ship is yours. Let's see how you do it. That afternoon, we spotted a fat Spanish beauty, loaded from Madrid. I sailed up close. They were in a panic. Who is it? Their captain cried. Wesley, I told him. Never heard of you, he answered. And with that, they opened fire. Disaster. They had no fear of me at all. I was so flustered I did everything wrong, and soon they got away. I was, do I have to add, disheartened. Roberts called me to his cabin. I slunk in like a whipped boy. Buck up, he told me. And then he closed the door and we were quite alone. What I'm about to tell you, I have never said before and you must guard it closely. I of course said I would. I am not the dread pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited this ship from the previous dread pirate Roberts, just as you'll inherit it from me. 
The man I inherited from was not the real Dread Pirate Roberts either. His name was Cummerbund. The real original Dread Pirate Roberts has been retired 15 years and has been living like a king in Patagonia. I confess my confusion. It's really very simple, Ryan explained. After several years, the original Roberts was so rich he wanted to retire. Clooney was his friend and first mate, so he gave the ship to Clooney, who had an identical experience to yours. The first ship he attempted to board nearly blew him out the water. So Roberts, realizing the name was the thing that inspired the necessary fear, sailed the revenge to port, changed crews entirely, and Clooney told everyone he was a Dread Pirate Roberts. And who was to know he wasn't? When Clooney retired rich, he passed the name to Cummerbund. Cummerbund to me, and I, Felix Raymond Ryan, a boodle outside Liverpool, now dubbed the Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts. All we need to do is land, take on some new young pirates. I'll sail along for a few days as Ryan, your first mate, and will tell everyone about my years with you, the Dread Pirate Roberts. Then you will let me off when they're all believers, and the waters of the world are yours. Wesley smiled at Buttercup. So now you know, and you should also realize why it's foolish to be afraid. But I am afraid. It'll all be happy at the end. Consider, a little over three years ago, you were a milkmaid and I was a farm boy. Now you're almost a queen and I rule uncontested on the water. Surely such individuals were never intended to die in a fire swamp. How can you be sure? Well, because we're together, hand in hand, in love. Oh yes, Buttercup said. I keep forgetting that. Both her words and her tone were a trifle standoffish, something Wesley surely would have noticed had not a ruse attacked him from the tree branch, sinking its giant teeth into his unprotected shoulder, forcing the earth in a very unexpected spurt of blood. The other two that had been following launched their attack then too, ignoring Buttercup, driving forward with all their hungry strength to Wesley's bleeding shoulder. Any discussion of the ruse, R-O-U-S, rodents of unusual size, must begin with the South American capybara, which has been known to reach a weight of 150 pounds. They're nothing but water hogs, however, and present very little danger. The largest pure rat is probably the Tasmanian, which has actually been weighed at 100 pounds, but they have little agility, tending to sloth when they reach full growth, and most Tasmanian herdsmen have learned with ease to avoid them. The fire swamp roos were a pure rat strain, weighed usually 80 pounds, and had the speed of wolfhounds. They were also carnivorous and capable of frenzy. The rats struggled with each other to reach Wesley's wound. Their enormous front teeth tore at the unprotected flesh of his left shoulder, and he had no idea Buttercup was already half-devoured. He only knew that if he didn't do something desperate right then and right there, she would be. So he intentionally rolled his body into a spurt of flame. His clothes began to burn. That he expected. But most important, the rat shied away from the heat and the flames for just an instant. But that was long enough for him to reach and throw his long knife into the heart of the nearest beast. The other two turned instantly on their own kind and began eating it while it was still screaming. Wesley had his sword by then, and with two quick thrusts, the trio rats were disposed of. Hurry, he shouted to Buttercup, who stood frozen where she had been when the first rat landed. Bandages, bandages, Wesley cried. Make me some bandages or we die. And with that, he rolled onto the ground, tore off his burning clothing and sat to work caking mud on the deep wound in his shoulder. 
They're like sharks, blood creatures. It's blood they thrive on. He smeared more and more mud into his wound. We must stop my bleeding. We must cover the wound so they do not smell it. If they don't smell the blood, we'll survive. If they do, we're done for. So please help me. Buttercup ripped her clothes into patches and ties and they worked at the wound, caking the blood with mud from the floor of the fire swamp, then bandaging and rebandaging over it. We'll know soon enough, Wesley said, because two more rats were watching them. Wesley stood, sword in hand. If they charge, they smell it, he whispered. The giant rat stood watching. Come, Wesley whispered. Two more giant rats joined the first pair. Without warning, Wesley's sword flashed, and the nearest rat was bleeding. The other three contented themselves with that for a while. Wesley took Buttercup's hand, and again they started to move. How bad are you, she said. I am in something close to agony, but we can talk about that later. Hurry now. They hurried. They had been in the fire swamp for one hour, and it turned out to be the easiest one they had of the six it took to cross it. But they crossed it, alive and together, hand very much in hand. It was nearly dusk when they at last saw the great ship Revenge far out in the deepest part of the bay. Wesley, still within the confines of the fire swamp, sank, beaten to his knees. For between him and his ship were more than a few inconveniences. From the north sailed in half the great armada, from the south now the other half. A hundred mounted horsemen, armored and armed. In front of them, the count, and out alone in front of all, the four whites with the prince astride the leader. Wesley stood. We took too long in crossing. The fault is mine. I accept your surrender, the prince said. Wesley held Buttercup's hand. No one is surrendering, he said. You're acting silly now, the prince said. I credit you with bravery. Don't make yourself a fool. What is so foolish about winning, Wesley wanted to know. It's my opinion that in order to capture us, you'll have to come into the fire swamp. We spent many hours here now, and we know where the snow sand waits. I doubt that you or your men will be too anxious to follow us in there. And by morning, we will have slipped away. I doubt that somehow, said the prince, and he gestured out to sea. Half the armada had begun to give chase to the great ship Revenge, and the Revenge alone was sailing, as it had to do, away. Surrender, the prince said. It will not happen. Surrender, the prince shouted. Death first, Wesley roared. Will you promise to not hurt him, Buttercup whispered. What was that, the prince said. What was that, Wesley said. Buttercup took a step forward and said, if we surrender, freely and without struggle, if life returns to what it was one dusk ago, will you swear not to hurt this man? Prince Humperdinck raised his right hand. I swear on the grave of my soon-to-be-dead father and the soul of my already dead mother that I shall not hurt this man. And if I do, may I never hunt again, though I live a thousand years. Buttercup turned to Wesley. There, she said, you can't ask for more than that. And that's the truth. The truth, said Wesley, is that you would rather live with your prince than die with your love. I would rather live than die, I admit it. We were talking to love, madam. 
There was a long pause. Then Buttercup said it. I can live without love. And with that, she left Wesley alone. Prince Humperdinck watched her as she began the long cross to him. When we're out of sight, he said to Count Rugen, take that man in black and put him in the fifth level of the zoo of death. The Count nodded. For a moment, I believed you when you swore. I spoke truth. I never lie, the prince replied. I said I would not hurt him. But I never for a moment said he would not suffer pain. You will do the actual tormenting. I'll only spectate. He opened his arms then for his princess. He belongs to the ship Revenge, Buttercup said. He is, she began, about to tell Wesley's story, but that was not for her to repeat. A simple sailor, and I've known him since I was a child. Will you arrange that? Must I swear again? No need, Buttercup said, because she knew, as did everyone, that the prince was more forthright than any Florinese. Come along, my princess. He took her hand. Buttercup went away with him. Wesley watched it all. He stood silently at the edge of the fire swamp. It was darker now, but the flame spurts behind him outlined his face. He was glazed with fatigue. He had been bitten, cut, gone without rest, had assaulted the cliffs of insanity, had saved and taken lives. He had risked his world, and now it was walking away from him, hand in hand with the ruffian prince. Then Buttercup was gone, out of sight. Wesley took a breath. He was aware of the score of soldiers starting to surround him, and probably he could have made a few of them perspire for their victory. But for what point? Wesley sagged. Come, sir, Count Rugen approached. We must get you safely to your ship. We're both men of action, Wesley replied. Lies do not become us. Well spoken, said the Count. And with one sudden swing, he clubbed Wesley into insensitivity. Wesley fell like a beaten stone, his last conscious thought being of the Count's right hand. It was six-fingered and Wesley could never quite remember having encountered that deformity before. Chapter 6 The Festivities When Inigo regained consciousness, it was still night on the cliffs of insanity. Far below, the waters of Florence Channel pounded. Inigo stirred, blinked, tried to rub his eyes. Couldn't. His arms were tied together around a tree. Inigo blinked again, banishing cobwebs. He had gone on his knees to the man in black, ready for death. Clearly, the victor had other notions. Anigo looked around as best he could, and there it was, the six-fingered sword, glittering in the moonlight like lost magic. Anigo stretched his right leg as far as it would go, and managed to touch the handle. Then it was simply a matter of inching the weapon close enough to be grasped by one hand. And then it was an even simpler task to slash his bindings. He was dizzy when he stood, and he rubbed his head behind his ear where the man in black had struck him. A lump, sizable to be sure, but not a major problem. The major problem was what to do now. Vizzini had strict instructions for occasions such as this, when a plan went wrong. Go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, away from Vizzini, then regroup, replan, start again. Anigo had even made a little rhyme out of it for Fezzik, so the giant would not have problems remembering what to do in time of trouble. 
full, full, back to the beginning is a rule. Inigo knew precisely where the beginning was. They had gotten the job in Florence City itself, the thieves' quarter. Bazzini had made the arrangements alone, as he always did. He had met with their employer, had accepted the job, had planned it, all in the thieves' quarter. So the thieves' quarter was clearly the place to go. Only, Inigo hated it there. Everybody was so dangerous, big, mean, and muscular. And so what if he was the greatest venture in the world? Who'd know what to look at him? He looked like a skinny Spanish guy and might be fun to rob. You couldn't walk around with a sign saying, Be careful, this is the greatest venture since the death of the Wizard of Corsica. Do not burgle. Besides, in here, Inigo felt deep pain. He wasn't that great of a fencer. Not anymore. He couldn't be. Hadn't he just been beaten? The thieves' quarter was worse than he remembered. Always before, Fezzik had been with them. And they made rhymes. And Fezzik was enough to keep any thief away. Anigo moved, panicked up the dark streets. Desperately afraid. Why this giant fear? What was he afraid of? He sat on a filthy stoop and pondered. Around him, there were cries in the night and, from the alehouses, vulgar laughter. He was afraid, he realized then, because as he sat there, gripping the six-fingered sword for confidence, he was suddenly back to what he had been before Vizzini had found him. A failure. A man without point, with no attachment to tomorrow. Anigo had not touched brandy in years. Now he felt his fingers fumbling for money. Now he heard his footsteps running towards the nearest alehouse. Now he saw his money on the counter. Now he felt the brandy bottle in his hand. Back to the stoop he ran. He opened the bottle. He smelled the rough brandy. He took a sip. He coughed. <coughs> he took a swallow. He coughed again. <coughs> he gulped it down and coughed and gulped some more and half began to smile. His fears were starting to leave him. After all, why should he have even been afraid? He was Inigo Montoya. The bottle was half gone now. Son of the great Domingo Montoya. So what was there in the world worth fearing? Now all the brandy was gone. How dare fear approach a wizard such as Inigo Montoya? Well, never again. Into the second bottle. Never, 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 never again. He sat alone and confident and strong. His life was straight and fine. He had money enough for brandy, and if you had that, you had the world. The stoop was wretched and bleak. Anigo slumped there, quite contented, clutching the bottle in his once trembling hands. Existence was really very simple when you did what you were told, and nothing could be simpler or better than what he had in store. All he had to do was wait and drink until Vizzini came. Fezzik had no idea how long he was unconscious. He only knew, as he staggered to his feet on the mountain path, that his throat was very sore where the man in black had strangled him. What to do? The plans had all gone wrong. Fezzik closed his eyes, trying to think. There was a proper place to go when things went wrong, but he couldn't quite remember it. Anigo had even made a rhyme up for him so he wouldn't forget. And now, even with that, he was so stupid he had forgotten. What was it? Was it stupid, stupid, going away for Vizzini with Cupid? That rhymed, but where was the Cupid? 
Dummy, dummy, go out now and fill your tummy? That rhymed too, but what kind of instructions were those? What to do, what to do? Dunce, dunce, use your brain and do a right for once. No help. Nothing was any help. He never had done anything right, not in his whole life, until Vizzini came. And without another thought, Fezzik ran off into the night after the Sicilian. Vizzini was napping when he got there. He had been drinking wine and dozed off. Fezzik dropped to his knees and put his hands in prayer position. Vizzini, I'm sorry, he began. Vizzini napped on. Fezzik shook him gently. Vizzini did not wake. Not so gently this time. Nothing. Oh, I see, you're dead, Fezzik said. He stood up. He's dead, Vizzini is, he said softly. And then, with not a bit of help in his brain, a great scream of panic burst from his throat into the night. Anigo! And he whirled back down the mountain path, because if Anigo was alive, it would be all right. It wouldn't be the same, no. It can never be that without Vizzini to order them and insult them as only he could. But at least there will be time for poetry. And when Fezzik reached the cliffs of insanity, he said, Anigo, Anigo, here I am, to the rocks, and I'm here, Anigo, it's your Fezzik, to the trees, and Anigo, Anigo, answer me, please. All over, until there was no other conclusion to draw, but that just as there was now no Vizzini, there was also no Anigo, and that was hard. It was, in point of fact, too hard for Fezzik, so he began to run, crying out, Be with you in a minute, Anigo, and right behind you, Anigo. And hey, Anigo, wait up. Wait up, straight up. Which is the way he ran. And wouldn't there be fun with rhymes once he and Anigo were together again? But after an hour or so of shouting, his throat gave out. Because he had, after all, been strangled almost to death in the very recent past. On he ran. On and on and on. Until finally he reached a tiny village and found, just outside town, some nice rocks that formed kind of a cave. Almost big enough for him to stretch out in. He sat with his back against a rock and his hands around his knees and his throat hurting until the village boys found him. They held their breath and crept as close as they dared. Fezzik hoped they would go away, so he froze, pretending to be off with Anigo, and Anigo would say Beryl, and Fezzik would come right back and say Carol. And maybe they would sing a little something until Anigo said Serenade, and you couldn't stump Fezzik with one that easy because of Centigrade. And then Anigo would make a word about the weather, and Fezzik would rhyme it, and that was how it went until the village boys stopped being afraid of him. Fezzik could tell that because they were creeping very close to him now, and all of a sudden yelling their lungs out and making crazy faces. He didn't really blame them. He looked like the kind of person you did that to. Mocked. His clothes were torn, and his throat was gone, and his eyes were wild, and he probably would have yelled too if he had been their age. It was only when they found him funny that he found it. Though he did not know the word, degrading. No more yelling, just laughter now. Laughter, Fezzik thought. And then he thought, giraffter, because that was all he was to them. Some huge, funny thing that couldn't make much noise. Laughter, giraffter, from now to hereafter. Fezzik huddled up in his cave and tried looking on the bright side. At least they weren't throwing things at him. Not yet, anyway. Wesley awoke, chained in a giant cage. His shoulder was beginning to fester from the gnawing and digging that the roots had done to his flesh. He ignored the discomfort, momentarily, to try and adjust to his surroundings. He was certainly underground. 
It was not the lack of windows that made that sure. More the dankness. From somewhere above him now, he could hear animal sounds. An occasional lion roar. The yelp of the cheetah. Shortly after his return to consciousness, the albino appeared, bloodless, with skin as pale as dying birch. The candlelight that served to illuminate the cage made the albino seem totally like a creature who had never seen the sun. The albino held a tray which carried many things, bandages and food, healing powders and brandy. Where are we? From Wesley. A shrug from the albino. Who are you? Shrug. That was almost the entire extent of the fellow's conversation. Wesley asked question after question, while the albino tended and redressed his wound, then fed him food that was warm and surprisingly good and plentiful. Shrug. Shrug. Who knows I'm here? Shrug. Lie, but tell me something. Give me an answer. Who knows I'm here? Whispered. I know. They know. They? Shrug. The prince and the count, you mean? Nod. And that's all? Nod. When I was brought in, I was half conscious. The count was given the orders, but three soldiers were carrying me. They know, too. Shake. Whispered. Knew. They're dead. That's what you're saying? Shrug. Am I to die, then? Shrug. Wesley lay back on the floor of the giant underground cage, watching as the albino silently reloaded the tray glided from sight. If the soldiers were dead, surely it was not unreasonable to assume that he would eventually follow. But if they wanted his eraser, surely it was also not unreasonable to assume that they had not the least intention of doing it immediately. Else, why tend to his wounds? Why return his strength with good warm food? No, his death would be a while yet. But in the meantime, considering the personality of his captors, it was finally not unreasonable to assume that they would do their best to make him suffer. Greatly. Wesley closed his eyes. There was pain coming, and he had to be ready for it. He had to prepare his brain. He had to get his mind controlled and safe from their efforts, so that they could not break him. He would not let them break him. He would hold together against anything and all. If only they gave him sufficient time to make ready. He knew he could defeat pain. It turned out they gave him sufficient time. It was months before the machine was ready. But they broke him anyway. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Spotify. It only takes a few seconds. You can also leave a review on Podchaser and copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts. And copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can leave a donation for the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast. Or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. Or on the Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club 
is by that kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you slipped.